Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look together into your word. And Lord, we pray that by this sobering, frightful depiction of your perfect justice, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be all the more earnest to make it so that we don't hear the siren call of transgression speaking to us in our hearts. Lord, make us vigilant to put sin to death, to resist the temptation to cultivate evil thoughts and wicked desires. And Lord, we pray that you would stir us up to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to make every effort to make our calling and election sure, lest we be swept away. Father, we pray that you would terrify us with your wrath, that you would appall us with the evil of sin, and that you would make us recognize those ways that we ourselves are inclined to sin, cause us to hate those things, Lord, cause us to put our sin to death, to, to give it no quarter, to make no deals with it. Lord, we ask that you do this, that we might be holy before you, that we might walk in joy before you, that we might honor you in all things. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 19. We're continuing in our, in our study of Genesis this morning. And actually, as you turn there, I want to use Psalm 36 to, to sort of set the framework, if you will, for the way that I want to approach Genesis chapter 19. And so what I mean by setting the framework from Psalm 36 is I want to draw your attention, if you, if you are able or, or so desire to turn to Psalm 36, you can. If you don't want to, that's okay. We're just going to move through it quickly. I just want to draw your attention to the way that the opening statements of Psalm 36 refer to how transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And we all know what this is like. We all experience the, the resonance of the appeal of sin because we're sinners. We're sinners and sin is attractive to us as sinners. And then it goes on that there is no fear of God before his eyes for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. And I suspect that this is exactly how the inhabitants of Sodom thought. Transgression spoke to them. It made sense to them. I suspect that, that the inhabitants of Sodom probably had songs about their practices. They, they probably told themselves stories and maybe had art that depicted their deeds and what seemed normal to them. And, and all of this was part of their culture, the way that they were living. And they didn't fear God, and they flattered themselves that they would never be judged for these things. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. And so as they told themselves these stories, as they sang themselves 
these songs as they assured themselves that their behavior was perfectly normal and natural and it was exactly what you should expect. The words of their mouth were trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And I wonder if you relate to this. This is, this is the frightful thing about the passage before us, is that it's so easy for us to see ourselves in it, in the wrong place. It's so easy for us to, to identify with plotting trouble while on our beds. We ought to be meditating on Scripture while on our beds. We ought to be communing with the Lord while on our beds. But so often, we're cultivating wicked desires. We're thinking about how we can avenge ourselves. We're thinking about ways to exalt ourselves. We're, we're cultivating greed and, and, and so many evils. And then the rest of the passage, rest of Psalm 36, it's like the psalmist, David, responds with the way that will overcome everything that he's just described. He starts talking about the Lord. He starts talking about the steadfast love of the Lord that extends to the heaven in verse 5. His faithfulness to the clouds. And then he speaks of his righteousness being like the mountains of God and the judgments like the great deep. So what David is doing is he is countering the appeal of sin with the knowledge of God. And he's, he's stirring up within himself love for God by contemplating God. Man and beast you save, O Lord, he says at the end of verse 6. And then in verse 7 he spe- begins to speak of how precious the steadfast love of God is. And, and the way that the children of man take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. And in verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So what's good about walking with God is being satisfied in knowing God. Knowing a God like whom there is no other. And then being satisfied, feasting on the abundance of his house. He then says in verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. When you enjoy yourself as God intends on God's good pleasures, it's like you're drinking of the fountain of life. And you have no remorse, you feel no regret, and by faith, you can look forward to eternal life. In your light do we see light. And then he prays, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. So we want to be in the second half of Psalm 36, satisfying ourselves in the Lord, not in the first half of Psalm 36, which is really where, where we find the inhabitants of Sodom, if you want to now turn back to Genesis chapter 19. And, and as we look at this passage, there, there are a number of, of striking connections between Genesis 19 and previous passages. For instance, if you, if you go back to Genesis 18, in Genesis 18, we have Abram, Abraham. He's, he's sitting at the door of his tent, so it's an entranceway, and he lifts up his eyes and he sees the Lord, these three men who are standing in front of him. And he bows himself to the earth before them, and in verse 4, he urges them to rest themselves and, and he speaks of how they can wash their feet. And all of this, it's like an echo of all of this in Genesis 19, where the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face 
to the earth. It's a lot of the same language that we saw with Abraham greeting the three men. Now Lot is greeting these two men who have come to him. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. And as we consider this, I just want to back up for a second and give some broader background. Um, Lot has been living among these people for quite some time now. Back in Genesis chapter 13, Lot chose the land of Sodom. And though in Genesis 13, 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, Lot settled there and moved his tent, his dwelling place, as far as Sodom. And, and it's interesting how the, the Bible, Moses doesn't come right out and say, this was foolish and sinful for Lot to do. But he does subtly critique him. He does subtly present, and, and, he, and he, he shows rather than tells, I think. He shows Lot choosing territory that has not been promised to Abram. And he shows Lot separating from Abram. And then he shows Lot, even though those people are wicked, seeming to gravitate toward them. So I think it's interesting that, that Moses does not say something like this. Lot is responsible for the culture in Sodom. I don't think Moses says that at all. He does seem to say Lot should not have made his home there. But he says it very, very subtly. He doesn't come right out and say it. It's just sort of a feature of the narrative. These people are wicked. Lot moved in that direction. Draw your own conclusions. So Lot is now in the gate of the city. And the gate of the city is a place that, that reputable men in the city would sit. And so these people come, and Lot knows what the inhabitants of Sodom are like. And so he knows that it will not be safe for these two men to spend the night in the square. So he insists that they not do that. Verse 3. He pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So uh, this, is, this is not a good place, Sodom. Uh, the people, as we saw in 1313, they're great sinners before the Lord. Chapter 18, the outcry against Sodom is very great. And we're about to see what that outcry was prompted by as we continue here in verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And, and I think that one of the reasons that the description of the populace, the male populace of the city, is so comprehensive here is because of the way that Abram, Abraham had interceded with the Lord in the previous chapter, what we saw last week. And you'll remember how Abraham was, was saying, if you find 50 righteous in the city, if you find 45, and then he works himself down to 10. And now Moses is showing every last man in the city, young and old and all in between, they all surround the city. And this is happening because they've seen these men. And, and we should stop and ponder this for just a moment, and, and we should take it as an opportunity to, to search our own hearts. Because what's happened is these two, these, I, I think they're probably angels, but they are representatives of the Lord. These two 
manifestations of God, the manifestations of the presence of God have come to Sodom. And how do the Sodomites respond? They don't respond with fear and trembling. They don't respond by thinking to themselves, we are in big trouble. This is a holy God. This is a righteous God. We must repent and turn from our wicked. They don't respond that way. The visitation of God prompts them to think this is an opportunity for us to gratify ourselves sexually, by force if necessary. That's how they respond. These are people who are so completely and totally given over to their lust. We, we recently went through the book of Romans and we saw how the Lord... When, when people reject the knowledge of God, they exchange the truth of God for the lie. God gives them over to the lusts, their desires. These, these people in Sodom have been handed over to their desires. And it may seem normal to them. They may have songs about it. They may think everyone else in their culture looks at these things the way that they do. That doesn't make it right. So... Verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And this is the Bible's way of saying that these men who have surrounded the city are desiring to know these men who have come to visit Lot in a way that a man should know his wife. And the explicit prohibition of this will come later in the book of Genesis, but Moses has already done enough showing by showing the Lord making male and female and then talking about how the, the two of them should come together as one flesh. And then he's talked about how Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. The Lord has already set the baseline for human behavior. It is already clear to readers of Genesis that's the way it should be, the way the Lord designed it in the garden. So this is profaning God's intentions. This is, this is as, as Leviticus will say, this is abominable behavior on the part of the Sodomites. As Paul will say in Romans 1, they are exchanging what is natural for what is unnatural. They are going against God's design. So not only do you have the, the sexual sin that they intend to commit, there are, there are also uh, sins against hospitality codes in the ancient world. These, these visitors have come to their town, and Lot has taken them under his protection. And the men of Sodom, they're not concerned about hospitality. They're not concerned about the living God. They're not concerned about what's natural. They want only what they want. Now, the way that we should respond to this is we should not say, oh, how wicked the men of Sodom were, which they were. I mean, but that should not be our primary response. What we should do is we should let this be a mirror, and we should examine our own hearts, and we should say, Lord, in what way am I like this? In what way do I see some benefit that you give to me in my life? And my response is, how can I use this for my gratification? In what way do you bless me in some way? And my response is, I can squeeze this. I can milk this. I can use this for my own advancement. And then we need to identify those things and we need to go to war 
against those sins, those sinful impulses in our own hearts. Lot tries to intercede in verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers. I think this is a bad sign for Lot. To say to these people, my brothers, it's as though he's identifying with them. These, it's as though he's speaking of these people as though they are his family. And, and I think this is, this is not a good sign for where Lot is and how he's doing. He says to them, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And then there is just no excuse for what Lot does in verse 8. You know, it, it may have been considered at some level normal in the culture in which he lived. It may have been something that, that came to him because the people were so wicked. But there's no excuse for this. There, there is no excuse for what he says in verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot seems to be saying, I am trying to protect these men and preserve, uphold the norms and the requirements regarding hospitality. And I'm willing now to sacrifice my two daughters in order to uphold the, the, the regulations concerning hospitality. But you don't accomplish righteousness by doing evil. You, you, don't, you don't avoid one way of sinning by pursuing another way of sinning. There, there may be times when you have to choose the lesser of two evils, but you don't choose one sin to avoid another. We can't do that. And, and so Lot, in his desperation and wickedness and probably pride... Probably these guys are impressive, the two angels. This is probably what attracts all the men of Sodom to them. They're probably uh, really uh, significant looking and, 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 and glorious. And, and Lot, in the midst of everything else, wants them to think well of him. Well, this is not the way to accomplish it, is it? And, and I just want to pause here and say, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, that there's always a way out. There's always another way. And, and so whatever it is, Lot should have come up with some other proposal. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and there will be, there will be a way of escape for you. So Lot should have had a, he should have used his imagination. He, he should have come up with some other proposal for protecting these guys. The men of Sodom, though, they're not interested in in these two girls. Verse 9, they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they decide that they're going to use Lot in the way that he suggested they use his daughters. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So Lot is brought into the house, and then these these angelic heavenly beings, appearing as men, close the door. And uh, at this point, I, I, I just want to start drawing attention to some parallels between what we saw in Genesis 6 through 9 and what we're seeing here in Genesis 19. So 
if you remember, in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, Moses writes about how the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, any whom they chose. And uh, this is, this is a, an offense against nature because the sons of God are heavenly beings and they are uh, transgressing boundaries to intermarry. This is the way I read the passage. I think this is the way that Jude and Peter read the passage. They are intermarrying with females, so they're committing a, sex, a flagrantly sexual transgression. Well, that's what the men of Sodom are set on doing. And then you'll remember that Genesis chapter 7, verse 16 talks about how God shuts Noah in the ark. And it uses the very same, not all that common, Hebrew word to describe now these two angels shutting the door to close Lot in. And then look at, look at what goes on to happen here in Genesis 19. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot, I'm sorry, uh, 1910, uh, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, da- sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. And that language of destroying Sodom uses the same terminology that the Lord used when he described to Noah in Genesis 6, 13 and 17, that he was about to destroy the earth by means of the flood. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, this is, this is actually encouraging what, what happens next, because Because what Lot does is not what his sons-in-law are going to do. Lot's sons-in-law, they hear the word that the city's about to be destroyed, and they think he's joking. They think it's funny. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, right. We're going to be destroyed under the wrath of God. Ha! That's really funny. That's not how Lot responds. Lot's response is, "I, I have to go warn them. And in this, I would submit to you, I mean, I'm not, look, I'm not telling you that Lot is like a spiritual giant here, but Lot responds in faith, just like Noah does. Noah, the Lord says, Noah, build this boat that's going to be so big, it's going to have to be your full-time job for a really long time. It's going to require all your resources. And Noah says, sure thing, I'll get right on that. That's exactly what I'm going to do. The Lord says to Lot, go warn anybody connected to you that this place is about to be destroyed. Look at what Look what happens here. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't question. He doesn't dither. He goes right to it. This place is about to be destroyed. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. I suspect that there are people that if you warn, you know, the Bible talks about the Lord Jesus coming back. And he says that when he, when the, the Bible says that when he comes back, it is not going to be pleasant for those who are against him. In fact, it says that, that they're going to meet flaming fire of judgment. It, it says that he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. I suspect that if you do this very often with people who don't believe, you, they will think that you're joking. They will probably mock you. They will begin to say, 
where is the appearance of his coming? Just as Peter talks about over in 2 Peter chapter 3. You'll meet with the very same response that Lot met with. You should still respond in faith. You should still warn people of the judgment that's coming. You should still share the gospel. As morning dawned, verse 15, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away. And this uses the language that, that uh, was in the, in the dialogue with Abraham. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And now the Lord, even though he's not doing exactly what Abraham prayed for, the sparing of the city, there aren't ten righteous in the city, the Lord is making it so that Lot is not going to be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, but he lingered. And, and Moses doesn't elaborate. We're not told why he lingered. But I suspect we can all relate to this. The Lord says, if you're going to walk with me, it would be better for you to cut off your hand. It would be better for you to gouge out your eye. It would be better for you to enter into life with one hand or one eye than to go to hell because of your sin. And we linger sometimes, don't we? We think to ourselves, well, I don't have to do it quite yet, do I? I don't have to make a clean break now, do I? And then look at what the text says in verse 16. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. These two angelic visitors who represent the very presence of God, they physically took hold of Lot, and they physically carried him out of the place that was to be destroyed. And the text says, the Lord being merciful to him. You know, I want to say a word to younger people in the room, kids in the room. If your parents catch you doing something you're not supposed to be doing, you should see that as God's mercy to you. If your parents physically restrain you from doing something wicked, you should see that as God's mercy to you. Lot was physically removed from this place of destruction, and this is God's mercy to him. So the New Testament... Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 refers to Lot being righteous. And I would point to these two things. Number one, Lot responded to the word of coming judgment in faith. And he went and told exactly who, who he was told to go and, and, and warn what he was told to tell them. you got to get out of this place. It's about to be destroyed. He responded in faith. Number two, God was merciful to Lot. God mercifully removed Lot from the destruction. And here again, we have another parallel with Noah, don't we? Noah, we're told in Genesis 6, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He, did, he, he responded in faith. The Lord was merciful to him. The Lord provided with him, provided him with a, a means to be delivered from the flood of destruction. If you're here this morning and you don't currently identify as a Christian, you don't think of yourself as a Christian, we want you to experience the mercy of God. 
We want you to feel like God took hold of you and lifted you from the path of destruction and put you onto solid ground. That's what we, we, we hope and pray you will experience. And our confidence is, we as Christians, our confidence is that the Word of God is powerful enough to do this. The Word of God is powerful enough that in a sermon about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you can come to realize God is holy, I'm a sinner. But Jesus is a great Savior, and Jesus can save me. And God may not physically lift you up out of your seat and put you into a safe place, but spiritually speaking, the Lord can deliver you. The Lord can change you. The Lord can change your desires and and what you want to do in life. The Lord can make you into someone who wants to do righteousness. So the men seized him, Genesis 19, verse 16, And his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Um, This is another subtle point of contact with the Noah story. You remember that, that the ark came to rest in the mountains, and Lot is here commanded, they render it hills, but it's the word mountains. Lot is commanded to escape to the mountains, so Lot, Lot escapes to the same place that, that Noah was delivered to. Lot said to them, verse 18, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. That's another point of contact. Uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Lot says, I've found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So Sodom and Gomorrah are not spared because there are ten righteous, but Zoar is spared because there's one righteous. So the Lord is, is being merciful to Zoar on account of Lot. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And it's another point of contact with the flood because the Lord rained, the Lord caused rain from heaven. And now, same Hebrew terminology is used to describe the Lord raining down, causing fire and brimstone to rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from the Lord out of heaven. Uh, last week after church, our family happened to drive by Highland Baptist Church, which is down in the Highlands. We were, uh, we were going to Clinton Dana's house to have, uh, uh, did we have Little Caesars pizza last week? Yeah, to have Little Caesars with them since we couldn't have potluck. And we passed Highland Baptist Church, and on their sign it says, no fire and brimstone here. That's a church that, that is affirming, if you know what I mean. They affirm same-sex relations. Look, they can deny the fire and brimstone all they want, that's really unwise of them. This, this text is in the Bible as a merciful and gracious warning. 
The Lord, this, you shouldn't take this as, oh, what a scold God is. Oh, what a killjoy God is. No, you should take this as, look how merciful God is. Look how kind God is to show you where certain behaviors lead. Verse 25, he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This too is like the flood where everything died. Now everything dies in that place. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him, you, you remember they, they said, don't look back. Lot's wife behind him looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? It seems, because judgment fell on her, it seems that her heart was in Sodom. And again, we want to respond to this by saying, Lord, where's my heart? What are the songs that I love? What's the company that I love? What's the, what's the entertainment that really draws me? Is it, is it stuff that celebrates the, the, the steadfast love of the Lord and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his justice, which are as high as the heavens above and like the clouds and like the great deep and like the mighty mountains? Are we, are we people who contemplate the Lord and find our delight in him or is transgression speaking in our hearts, deep in our hearts to us? And, and I suspect that the reason Lot's wife looked back was because transgression was speaking to her deep in her heart. And she was flattering herself. I'm not going to be judged. And then, this is, this is interesting how this, how this works. We're now, it's like the, the camera now goes from Lot fleeing the destruction to Abraham in verse 27. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. You remember Genesis 8-1, right? God remembered Noah. It's another point of connection with the flood story. God remembered Noah. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So this is another pointer to understanding Lot's righteousness. Even though Lot separated from Abraham, Lot's still connected to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, the Lord promised Abraham. And this seems to be an outworking of that promise in Genesis 12:3. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And then just as there are parallels between the flood and Sodom, there are parallels between Noah and Lot. I've already alluded to some of them, the way that Noah responded in faith, Lot responded in faith. But you remember what happened after the flood, right? Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine of the vineyard, and he became drunk, and he lay naked in his tent. And then there was this episode of shameful exposure of, of the nakedness of Noah before his sons, particularly Ham, who mocked him, and then Shem and Japheth cover him over. Well, here too, 
There's, after the deliverance from the destruction, there's a shameful, drunken nakedness with negative effects for the children. So it's another parallel between Noah and Lot. Verse 30, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, let's just pause again here. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is always a way out. What she says here is not true. She says there's not a man on earth. Yes, there are people. Lot needs to make contact with Abraham. Lot needs to have some fellowship with like-minded people. Lot is not the last remaining male. Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. How do we respond to this? I want to suggest a couple of different, several responses. Uh, the first thing I want to say is Lot has clearly not done his job as a husband and father, has he? Lot, Lot, Lot's responsibility as the husband of his wife, as the father of his children, was to protect them, to provide for them, to lead them, specifically to lead them to know God. And he has failed. He has not led his wife to know God. He has apparently not led his daughters to know God. So Lot has failed. And uh, fathers, husbands, single men in the room, this is your responsibility. You need to make every effort to lead. And you also need to avoid drunkenness. Nothing good happens when somebody is drunk, right? If Lot had not gotten drunk, he would not have become the father and grandfather of his daughter's children. This is a horrible shame on him. Nothing good will happen from drunkenness. And so Lot needs to take responsibility for himself. And if they're, I mean, how much, how much alcohol do you have to consume to the point where you don't know when someone lies down and when they rise up? You don't know what is happening. That's the, that's the amount of alcohol that Lot had consumed. Where, where is he spiritually to be, to be willing to drink that much alcohol? He's in a, obviously, he's in a really, really bad place to get that drunk. Two days in a row. So, guys, we got to be, we got to fight. We got to be vigilant. You got to fight for joy. You got to fight for satisfaction in God. And the only way to do this is to give your brain to the Bible the world is not going to spur you on to love and good deeds. The world is not going to tell you about how awesome God is. The only place you're going to get that information is from other believers or the scriptures. 
And we want to be people who are saturating ourselves in the goodness of God, the revelation of God in the scriptures, so that we're responding to him with the thanks and praise due him, and then so that we're like a tree of life to other people. The, the, the words of the wise are like a tree of life, the proverb says. That's how we want to live. We want to be people who give life to others because we speak the truth of Scripture to others. So that even if, I mean, Lot, Lot can't change his wife's heart or his daughter's heart, but he can set up requirements and restraints and boundaries in his family where certain things are not allowed, and he has not done this. But also, Lot's wife and Lot's daughters, they're responsible for their actions. They're responsible for their actions. So ladies in the room, daughters in the room, you are responsible for your choices. You're responsible for what you cultivate in your heart. Lot's wife, she had access to the things that Lot knew by means of his access to Abraham. She should have pursued the knowledge of God for herself. And this, it seems, she did not do. Lot's daughters, what motivates them to to be so desperate to conceive children that they concoct this plan. Which, by the way, this is another one of these examples in Genesis where when the women take the lead and the women come up with the plan, nothing good results. So this is an outworking of Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband, meaning you're going to want to control what happens and he will rule over you. So we saw it in Genesis 16 when, when Sarah comes up with the plan about Hagar. We see it here when Lot's daughters come up with this plan to have children by him. We'll see it again in Genesis 38 when Tamar comes up with a way to get pregnant by means of her father-in-law. What's prompting all this? Well, it seems that they are desperate to have children. As though having a child is more important than being faithful to the living God. I don't think our culture, maybe our culture is there in some ways, where, where certain things about having children or maybe having children act as, I don't know, is, is so, so important to us that it becomes more important to being faithful, more important than being faithful to the Lord. Ladies, we got to guard against that. you got to fight against that. You're responsible if you get there. There are probably other things, though, in our culture that would prompt women to do desperate things, to take measures like this. And whatever those things are, we have, to, we have to fight. We have to fight to know God and to be satisfied in Him. So Lot's responsible, and Lot's wife and daughters are responsible. But lastly here, what I want to see, to see is the way that this may sound crazy, but God brings good out of evil. God brings good out of evil. Look at, look at verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. You may say to me, well, how does this God bring good out of evil? Well, number one, all those people got to live. That's a good, life is a great gift from God, but more importantly, there's a Moabite, there's a Moabitess, I should say, by the name of Ruth, who winds up in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And 
believing what we do about the meticulous sovereignty of God, knowing what we know about the DNA structures of human beings, you can't take a single person out of that line of descent and have Jesus. So if we don't have Lot's daughter, we don't have Moab. And if we don't have Moab, eventually we don't have Ruth. And if we don't have Ruth, we don't have Jesus. So I say this to say there's never cause to give up. There is always reason for hope. As, as long as you're alive, as long as you are pursuing the knowledge of the God of the Bible, there is never a reason to give up. There's never a reason to, to decide, there's no hope for me, this is too bad, I can't continue, I should, and there's never a reason to come to that conclusion. There's always a reason to think to yourself. You, you should think something like this. Ruth came from the incest between Lot and his own daughter. Whatever it is I've done, however it is that I've failed, God can bring good out of this evil. If, if you'll repent, if you'll try. I mean, R Ruth, you remember her attitude? She said to Naomi, where you go, I will go. She's saying, I want to be with the people of Israel. Your God will be my God. I'm going to worship the true and living God. Where you die, there will I be buried. She's fully committed. She's all in. If you're fully committed, you're all in with the Lord. This is the God who works all things together for good for those who know him, those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God also brings good out of evil in the way that Sodom, as I said a moment ago, becomes a gracious warning, a gracious warning to which we should respond with the words of Jesus echoing in our ears. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And it's a merciful, gracious thing for God to say to us, repent, repent, turn. Don't get, don't get caught up in that culture. Don't get conformed to that culture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the testimony here that we see when we consider the destruction of the world at the flood, the destruction of Sodom. And Lord, we think of the way that the truth that you're teaching us is really encapsulated in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3, where it says that you thwart the craving of the wicked, but you satisfy the desire of the righteous. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us by means of the flood and the destruction of Sodom that you thwart the craving of the wicked. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize from our own experience the way that cultivating wicked desires saps joy and only produces further unhappiness. And, Lord, we pray that you give us hearts that believe, that you satisfy the desire of the righteous. Lord, we pray that you would give us the joy of walking with you, experiencing the river of your delights in our relationships, in our work, in our leisure. Lord, we want to feast on the abundance of your house. 
So Lord, we pray that you would cause us to know you, to know you in such a way that you become our treasure, you become what we worship, and you alone. Lord, help us to respond to you this way, in Christ's name, amen.